Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. This week, our meandering tour of state scares takes us through the winding, wooded countryside of rural Kentucky. Our destination, the town of Marion, and a little place called Pilot Knob Cemetery. Like any other small town, that Marion, Kentucky has its own little graveyard is no surprise. Most small towns do. But ask for directions on your way into town, and you'll quickly start to get the sense that Pilot Knob Cemetery isn't your average small-town cemetery. People around Marion seem hesitant to even speak about it. And the few who do? Well, they're more likely to warn you to turn back than go out of their way to help you get there. It seems the darkness that resides in Pilot Knob Cemetery has a firm grip on the local population. In fact, driving down the narrow road, trees crowded close to the edges of the gravel, you can't help but notice the air feels heavy, almost too calm and quiet, thick with a dark sense of foreboding. It's nearly twilight, and the dense canopy overhead casts dappled red shadows on the road. It gives the ground a strange quality like the mottling of infected flesh. You crest a short, rolling hill, and your tires skid on the gravel as your car slides to a stop in front of a large wooden cross. You exit your car, duck under a rope stretching across the path, and enter the old cemetery. It's fairly small, with sparse rows of gray, mossy headstones unevenly spaced like rotting teeth. The place is surprisingly immaculate, both perfectly maintained, yet somehow entirely forsaken. You wander around the area, checking out the graves and the lonely, gnarled black remains of a charred tree that keeps sinister watch over the property. But one grave in particular 
immediately catches your attention. It's different than the rest, ringed in a white iron fence made of interconnected crosses. The ground within the fence is covered in gravel and dead leaves, and a small marble headstone reads, Mary Evelyn Ford, May 9, 1911 to May 31, 1916. It might be the long shadows messing with your vision, but within the gravel in the closed-off area, you could almost swear there were small, childlike footprints, as though someone tiny had been pacing back and forth inside the fence. You look closer at the bars then, too, the white interconnected crosses, and you notice that some of the bars are bent. Not unusual for a graveyard of this age, certainly. But there's something unsettling about them, and at first you can't quite put your finger on it. Then you realize it's not that they're bent, it's how they're bent. As though grasped by small hands and pulled from the inside. The light is low now, and not only are your eyes playing tricks on you, but so too are your ears. It started to sound like there's someone else in the graveyard with you. A loud crackling of undergrowth from just out of the range of sight, as though something large and hulking is watching you from the edge of the forest. There's heavy breathing, and another sound, deep, raspy, and full of malicious intent. A voice? It's hard to tell. The air grows suddenly cold, and it's clear you're no longer welcome in Pilot Knob, if you ever were. You turn and head back to your car, and as you do, you feel a presence emerge from the forest, and hear heavy, thick steps keeping pace close behind you. You can feel the menacing presence pressing close, invading your personal space, a breeze or a breath raising goose flesh on the back of your neck. Your heart races and every step is quicker than your last. You don't dare turn, don't dare look, until you're safely back behind the steering wheel, with the engine on and your doors locked. And there, in the beams of your headlights, is nothing. Nothing but the large wooden cross and the gently swinging rope that marks the entrance to the cemetery grounds. There's more than one reason to stay away from Pilot Knob Cemetery after dark. Each is equally frightful in their own unique way, but the legend really starts with little Mary Evelyn Ford. By the early 1900s, being convicted of witchcraft was a rarity, and rarer still was the old capital punishment of burning convicted witches to death. But unfortunately for Mary Evelyn Ford and her mother, the people of Marion were happy, downright fanatical, in fact, to make an exception. The six-year-old and her mother were accused of heinous crimes, the result of their evil occult practices. And for that, the townspeople decided, there was only one remedy. No judge, no jury, no trial, just an angry mob 
and a roaring fire. At just six years old, it's hard to imagine why the villagers feared Mary Evelyn so much. But witches are crafty, after all, even the young ones. And as the old saying goes, it's better to be safe than sorry. So, after burning the girl alive, they placed her charred body into a steel-lined coffin and nailed it shut, then dropped her deep into the hole they dug. For good measure, they encased the coffin in concrete and erected a fence of interwoven crosses to keep her spirit contained. Mary Evelyn, they swore, wouldn't be rising to torment them again any time soon. But her intricate burial didn't prevent her from rising entirely, it seems. At night, the ghost of Mary Evelyn Ford is said to rise from her grave and pace the edges of her eternal prison, grasping the bars, rattling and bending them to no avail, desperate to get out. And if you happen to see her, it's hard not to feel sorry for her. She'll plead with you oh so sweetly, begging for your help. It's hard to resist. But if you answer her call, get too close, she'll grab you and with otherworldly strength drag you through the bars and down into her grave where she'll absorb your body and soul, feeding on you to make herself stronger. Charming, right? But on the other side of the bars is something just as frightening, but without that veil of innocence. It's known as the Watcher, a dark, black, man-shaped entity that jealously guards the outside of the girl's prison. As much as the little girl yearns for her freedom, it yearns to devour her, and it doesn't take kindly to those that might get in its way. Whether the Watcher is, as many suppose, the ghost of a man who was murdered on a nearby bridge, or maybe something even darker still, well, that remains to be seen. But for whatever reason, it's latched onto Mary Evelyn, and its dark intent is frightfully clear. It's an endless struggle that plays out night after night at Pilot Knob Cemetery. The girl fighting to break out, and the watcher hungering to break in. Not the kind of struggle you want to find yourself in the middle of. Now, what say we dig up some fiction? Our first story for the evening is our final Stoker Award nominee, and it comes to us from Annie Neugebauer. Annie Neugebauer is a two-time Bram Stoker Award-nominated author with work appearing in more than a hundred publications, such as Cemetery Dance, Apex, Black Static, and Year's Best Hardcore Horror. She's a columnist with Writer Unboxed and Lit Reactor. You can visit her at AnnieNeugebauer.com. Link is in the show notes. Join me for Annie Neugebauer's The Glove Box, first published in the Dark City Mystery Magazine. July 2018 
There was no one in the store, save the two of them. The air was still nippy from the brief opening of the door when she entered several minutes ago. The lady had already picked up a bag of crackers, the air-baked kind, and was now pacing slowly back and forth in front of the drink fridge, either looking for something specific they almost certainly didn't have, or surveying the options quite thoroughly. Rose added prices in her head, accounted for tax. It would be over the $3 credit card minimum for sure. That was a relief. It was always the small totalers who wanted to use change. Her boss, Dipti, had refused to stop accepting cash like most everyone else in the state. She said assuming everyone nowadays had smartphones with pay apps was privileged nonsense. She said there were still poor people who couldn't get approved for credit cards, and immigrants who couldn't even get the necessary IDs to apply for credit cards. She said they, as a business, couldn't afford to turn away their $2 sales. She said they, as a society, couldn't afford to turn away their most desperate members. Rose thought Dipti was right. But she also thought Dipti wasn't the one who had to work night shifts alone, and wasn't the one who had to reach out to accept that change. The lady had paused in front of a particular glass door, her line of sight trained low, her head dipped to the side to study the label without bending, without even lowering her neck. And something about that refusal of her spine to bow made Rose think she was wealthy. The woman wore jogger sweatpants, ugly boots, and an oversized sweater. But Rose couldn't shake the impression she had on stilettos and a fur stole. She was the type of woman who could pull off linen pants. Rose thought if the woman turned, she would have artfully smudged eyeliner, large pearl studs, and hair glossy enough to refuse an updo. The woman didn't turn, though. Not yet. She opened the door and squatted, and Rose pictured heels that weren't there, a mini-dress she would know how to bend in without the risk of flashing. And she reached out one hand to take a bottle of iced tea mixed with lemonade. 3.49, then. And of a class to pay with a credit card, surely. The only risk would be if she were so wealthy that she'd try to hand the credit card to Rose instead of swiping it herself. Rich people did that sometimes. Like they were so accustomed to others doing for them that they couldn't be bothered to learn for themselves. Rose had literally reached around customers before to swipe their card for them, and still had the customers watch. Not go, oh goodness, I didn't see that there. I could have done that. Not a drop of embarrassment. Simply a glazed look of long-suffering patience. Of course, that was before. Rose had always been one to politely accommodate customers. She'd swipe their card for them if that was what they wanted. But not now. Now she would say, Please swipe your card right there, ma'am, nodding with her head, and her arms would remain straight by her sides. She would lift one only to type in the prices, not even scan the products, and the receipt would hang uncut from the printer until the customer walked out of the door, unless they'd specifically asked for it in which case she would tear it quickly and shoot it across the counter like a paper dart. The lady turned, the crackers in one hand and the tea in the other, and Rose immediately wondered how much money she spent on skincare. Not under eye cream or wrinkle reducers, either. Real heavy-duty stuff. Office appointments and lasers and practitioners with medical degrees rather than licenses. Monthly maintenance appointments. Middle-aged, but flawless exquisitely beautiful. She smiled at Rose. Caught off guard, Rose smiled back, 
How are you tonight? She asked out of habit. She was going to say it either way, but she'd expected the lady to mutter fine thanks and avoid eye contact. Not this. Not this solid look and authentic smile. No stiffness to the cheeks, either. Either she was naturally gorgeous or her doctor was even better than Rose had thought. The woman set her products down in the middle of the counter, halfway between them. Her nails were surprisingly free of polish. I'm well, thank you. How are you? Always fascinating to hear the replies, when there was one. The forcedly cheerful, the blatant ignoring, the surprisingly honest answers of the worn down, the life stories that poured out and continued out the door, as if the person didn't really mind who they were talking to so long as they were talking. But the reciprocated question was a rare one. Not unheard of, but definitely on the unexpected end of the scale. I'm good, thanks for asking. Did you find everything you need? Rose typed in the price of the crackers and drink, hit the total button. Tax popped up and 349 appeared on the credit card scanner. I did. Rose nodded, smiling. Good deal. Your total's 349. She indicated the scanner with her head, hands feeling the fabric of her pants where the seam ran down the sides of her legs. The woman smiled again, looking sympathetic. Rose almost heard the word dear before she spoke, but it was left invisible, hanging. Do you mind if I pay you in cash? She opened her large purse and parted its leather pocket, pulling out an antique coin pouch hand-painted with a floral design. Rose couldn't say no. Her pulse surged, finally waking from the caffeine drop. No, ma'am, she said, her words stumbling into each other like toddlers. We still accept all forms of payment. She tried to hide the pleading from her eyes. The woman opened the pouch her perfectly rounded fingernails flicking open the metal clasp with a muted click. Maybe she had exact change. She pulled out a small rectangle of tightly folded bills. They were ones, though, not twenties. She could still pick out some coins and set them on the counter. And if she couldn't, maybe she'd set down four and leave the change. That's what most people were doing now, even the desperately poor. They wouldn't ask you to give them money back. Two quarters and a penny, it would be. Just leave it. She unfolded the rectangle slowly, precisely, and counted out four ones. She held them delicately in her left hand between the ring and middle fingers, using her right hand and the remaining fingers and thumb to fold the rectangle back up and tuck it into the coin pouch, click, and slip it into her purse. Then she took the bills in her right hand and stretched her arm toward Rose. High. Her arm was too high up in the air instead of reaching to set the bills flat. She was handing them to her, not putting them down. She expected Rose to take them. Rose's throat spasmed, trying to swallow, but her mouth was too dry. An ordinary gesture before, a thing she'd done thoughtlessly a thousand times. Surely this woman knew what she was asking of her. Rose could stare, silently refuse, outweighed the woman until she set the money down and pushed it forward, where Rose could snake up a quick hand, grab and tuck it furtively into the near-empty register. But the woman carried such quiet authority. That posture like she was used to the weight of diamonds draped across her collarbones. It couldn't be her, could it? Everyone seemed to think it was a man, and for whatever reason the victims weren't talking. Despite what had been done to them, they weren't willing to talk.
Too long. The moment was stretching near to breaking. She could refuse, but Rose hated this world, this feeling of intentional aloofness, this tired, required slackening of care. Her hand trembled when she stretched it out, cupped. She stopped halfway beneath the woman's hand, breath held. When the papery fabric of the dollars touched her palm, Rose tensed. The woman's skin grazed hers for just a moment, a fraction of a second, and an electric current jumped between them, the hyper-awareness of cells on a single part of the body. Rose withdrew her hand, with the dollars, letting out a shaky breath as she put it into the register and waited. She was still hoping the woman would say, Please, keep the coins. But the woman smiled at her softly, expectantly, her hand still hovering there, cupped now. Two quarters, one penny. The dirty smell of old money. A metallic taste in Rose's mouth, like she'd accidentally swallowed one when she wasn't looking. Her motions weren't slow, but her racing thoughts contrasted them, so as she reached out again, her fist clenching the textured sides of the quarters, her hand still trembling, positioning it above the woman's outstretched palm, they seemed slow by comparison. Right as she opened her fist to drop them, the woman spoke. What beautiful nails you have, she said softly, and Rose startled so hard the coins jumped. A quarter and a penny landed in her hand, but the second quarter went rolling off the counter, racing for the edge. Instinctively, Rose smacked it, flattening it to the counter with a sharp slap. Her heart pounded. They both froze. Rose remembered they'd been talking. Sorry, she said. Thank you. Her arm was locked, her upper body leaning forward, her hand very near the woman whose hand was still cupped in the air. Do you paint them yourself? Rose dragged the quarter toward her across the plastic surface, scraping it along. When it was near enough that she didn't have to lean forward, she lifted her palm and gripped the edges of the coin with two fingers. I do, she answered, picking it up. That's lovely, the woman went on, palm still waiting. It was fine. She was fine. She'd handed Rose the money with no problem. She hadn't moved for her when Rose had dropped the coin. It wasn't her. She wasn't the one. Slowly, moving through air thick as chewing gum, Rose lifted the final quarter and placed it gently atop the other two coins in the woman's hand, so that metal touched metal, but no skin. The woman watched Rose's eyes, not her fingers. I wish I could add more color that way. I love the red you chose. But about this time of year, I start wearing gloves, and it's a shame to cover up such pretty work. Panic iced through Rose. She froze. Gloves? The woman deftly dropped the coins into her left hand. Rose almost sighed in relief, but before she could withdraw, the woman's right hand gripped Rose's across the knuckles, then twisted them side to side like she was examining the polish. Yes, gloves. Rose's eyes locked onto hers, breath lumped in her throat. She tried to pull back. The woman's grip viced down. She tucked the coins away and reached her left hand out, too. She traced her fingers up Rose's arm, stopping just before the elbow, just to where the victim's skin had been removed. Beautiful, soft gloves that go all the way up to here. She traced a line circling Rose's forearm, her smooth, unpolished nail digging in just enough to leave a red pressure mark. Don't scream, the woman whispered. 
a voice used to giving gentle commands that were followed. Rose didn't scream. That was Annie Neugebauer's The Glove Box, as read by Alex Ford. When Alex isn't rocking around the nation in her band, for a theater reunion, she's holed up in her guest room following a different passion, recording audiobooks and editing manuscripts. An avid reader and writer, she delights in helping people bring their creativity to life. You can check out her exploits, Mystery Bruises, and A Most Handsome Cat, on Facebook or Instagram. Thank you, Alex. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. For our final story of the evening, it seemed only fitting to cap off the 2019 Stoker Award nominees with a tale from the man himself, Bram Stoker. Abraham Bram Stoker was an Irish author, best known today for his 1897 Gothic novel, Dracula. During his lifetime, he was better known as the personal assistant of actor Sir Henry Irving and business manager of the Lyceum Theatre in London which Irving owned. Stoker was bedridden with an unknown illness until he started school at the age of seven, when he made a complete recovery. Of this time, Stoker wrote, I was naturally thoughtful, and the leisure of long illness gave opportunity for many thoughts, which were fruitful according to their kind in later years. Stoker quickly outgrew his weaknesses to become an outstanding athlete. Turning to fiction late in life, Stoker published his first novel, The Snake's Pass, a romantic thriller with a bleak Western Ireland setting, in 1890. His masterpiece, Dracula, appeared in 1897. Stoker wrote several other novels and short stories, but none achieved a similar level of popularity. In his last years, Stoker's health declined rapidly. After a series of strokes and a possible battle with syphilis, Stoker died on April 20th, 1912, at the age of 64. Children of the Night, 
Join me for Bram Stoker's The Judge's House. When the time for his examination drew near, Malcolm Malcolmson made up his mind to go somewhere to read by himself. He feared the attractions of the seaside, and also he feared completely rural isolation, for of old he knew its harms, and so he determined to find some unpretentious little town where there would be nothing to distract him. He refrained from asking suggestions from any of his friends, for he argued that each would recommend some place of which he had knowledge, and where he had already acquaintances. As Malcolmson wished to avoid friends, he had no wish to encumber himself with the attention of friends' friends, and so he determined to look out for a place for himself. He packed a portmanteau with some clothes and all the books he required, and then took ticket for the first name on the local timetable, which he did not know. When at the end of three hours' journey he alighted at Benchurch, he felt satisfied that he had so far obliterated his tracks as to be sure of having a peaceful opportunity of pursuing his studies. He went straight to the one inn which the sleepy little place contained and put up for the night. Benchurch was a market town, and once in three weeks it was crowded to excess, but for the remainder of the twenty-one days it was as attractive as a desert. Malcolmson looked around the day after his arrival to try to find quarters more isolated than even so quiet an inn as the good traveler afforded. There was only one place which took his fancy, and it certainly satisfied his wildest ideas regarding quiet. In fact, quiet was not the proper word to apply to it. Desolation was the only term conveying any suitable idea of its isolation for it was an old, rambling, heavy-built house in the Jacobean style, with heavy gables and windows, unusually small and set higher than was customary in such houses, and was surrounded with a high brick wall massively built. Indeed, on examination it looked more like a fortified house than an ordinary dwelling. But all these things pleased Malcolmson. Here, he thought, is the very spot I have been looking for, and if I can get opportunity of using it, I shall be happy. His joy was increased when he realized beyond doubt that it was not at present inhabited. From the post office, he got the name of the agent who was rarely surprised at the application to rent a part of the old house. Mr. Carnford, the local lawyer and agent, was a genial old gentleman and frankly confessed his delight at anyone being willing to live in the house. "'To tell you the truth,' said he, "'I should be only too happy on behalf of the owners to let anyone have the house rent-free for a term of years if only to accustom the people here to see it inhabited. It has been so long empty that some kind of absurd prejudice has grown up around it.' and this can be best put down by its occupation, if only. He added with a sly glance at Malcolmson, by a scholar like yourself who wants it quiet for a time. Malcolmson thought it needless to ask the agent about the absurd prejudice. He knew he would get more information, if he should require it, on that subject from other quarters. He paid his three months' rent, got a receipt, and the name of an old woman who would probably undertake to do for him and came away with the keys in his pocket. 
He then went to the landlady of the inn, who was a cheerful and most kindly person, and asked her advice as to such stores and provisions as he would be likely to require. She threw up her hands in amazement when he told her where he was going to settle himself. Not in the judge's house, she said, and grew pale as she spoke. He explained the locality of the house, saying that he did not know its name. When he had finished, she answered, Aye, sure enough, sure enough the very place. It is the judge's house, sure enough. He asked her to tell him about the place, why so called, and what there was against it. She told him that it was so called locally because it had been many years before, how long she could not say, as she was herself from another part of the country, but she thought it must have been a hundred years or more the abode of a judge who was held in great terror on account of his harsh sentences and his hostility to prisoners at assizes. As to what there was against the house itself, she could not tell. She had often asked, but no one could inform her, but there was a general feeling that there was something, and for her own part she would not take in all the money in Drinkwater's bank and stay in the house an hour by herself. Then she apologized to Malcolmson for her disturbing talk. It is too bad of me, sir, and you a young gentleman, too, if you will pardon me saying it, going to live there all alone. If you were my boy, and you'll excuse me for saying it, you wouldn't sleep there a night, not if I had to go there myself and pull the big alarm bell that's on that roof. The good creature was so manifestly in earnest, and was so kindly in her intentions, that Malcolmson, although amused, was touched. He told her kindly how much he appreciated her interest in him, and added, but, my dear Mrs. Whittam, indeed you need not be concerned about me. A man who is reading for the mathematical tripos has too much to think of to be disturbed by any of these mysterious somethings, and his work is of too exact and prosaic a kind to allow his having any corner in his mind for mysteries of any kind. Harmonical progression, permutations and combinations, and elliptic functions have sufficient mysteries for me. Mrs. Whitham kindly undertook to see after his commissions, and he went himself to look for the old woman who had been recommended to him. When he returned to the judge's house with her, after an interval of a couple hours, he found Mrs. Whitham herself waiting with several men and boys carrying parcels, and an upholsterer's man with a bed and a car, for she said, though tables and chairs might be all very well, a bed that hadn't been aired for mayhap fifty years was not proper for young bones to lie on. She was evidently curious to see the inside of the house, and though manifestly so afraid of the somethings, that at the slightest sound she clutched to Malcolmson, whom she never left for a moment, went over the whole place. After his examination of the house, Malcolmson decided to take up his abode in the great dining room, which was big enough to serve for all his requirements, and Mrs. Whitham, with the aid of the charwoman, Mrs. Dempster, proceeded to arrange matters. When the hampers were brought in and unpacked, Malcolmson saw that with much kind forethought she had sent from her own kitchen sufficient provisions to last a few days. Before going, she expressed all sorts of kind wishes, and at the door turned and said, And perhaps, sir, as the room is big and drafty, it might be well to have one of these big screens put round your bed at night, though truth to tell I would die myself if I were to be so shut in with all kinds of... Things that put their heads round the sides or over the tops and look on me. The image which she had called up was too much for her nerves, and she fled incontinently. 
Mrs. Dempster sniffed in a superior manner as the landlady disappeared, and remarked that for her own part she wasn't afraid of all the boogies in the kingdom. "'I'll tell you what it is, sir,' she said. "'Boogies of all kinds and sorts and things except boogies, rats and mice and beetles and creaky doors and loose slates and broken panes and stiff drawer handles that stay out when you pull them and then fall down in the middle of the night.' Look at the wainscot of the room. It is old, hundreds of years old. Do you think there's no rats and beetles there? And do you imagine, sir, that you won't see none of them? Rats is bogies, I tell you, and bogies is rats, and don't you get to think anything else. Mrs. Dempster, said Malcolmson gravely, making her a polite bow. You know more than a senior wrangler, and let me say that as a mark of esteem for your indubitable soundness of head and heart, I shall, when I go, give you possession of this house and let you stay here by yourself for the last two months of my tenancy, for four weeks will serve my purpose. Thank you kindly, sir, she answered, but I couldn't sleep away from a home a night. I'm in Greenhouse Charity, and if I slept a night away from my rooms, I shall lose all I have got to live on. The rules is very strict. "'And there's too many waiting for a vacancy for me to run any risks in that matter. "'Only for that, sir, I'd gladly come here and attend to your altogether during your stay.' "'My good woman,' said Malcolmson hastily, "'I have come here on purpose to obtain solitude, "'and believe me that I am grateful to the late Greenhow "'for having so organized his admirable charity, whatever it is, "'that I am perforce denied the opportunity of suffering "'from such a form of temptation.' St. Anthony himself could not be more rigid on the point. The old woman laughed harshly. "'Ah, you young gentlemen,' she said, "'you don't fear for naught, and be like you'll get all the solitude you want here.' She set to work with her cleaning, and by nightfall when Malcolmson returned from his walk, he always had one of his books to study as he walked, he found the room swept and tidied, a fire burning in the old hearth, the lamp lit, and the table spread for supper with Mrs. Whitham's excellent fare. This is comfort indeed, he said as he rubbed his hands. When he had finished his supper and lifted the tray to the other end of the great oak dining table, he got out his books again, put fresh wood on the fire, trimmed his lamp, and set himself down to a spell of real hard work. He went on without pause till about eleven o'clock, when he knocked off for a bit to fix his fire and lamp and to make himself a cup of tea. He had always been a tea drinker, and during his college life had sat late at work and had taken tea late. The rest was a great luxury to him, and he enjoyed it with a sense of delicious, voluptuous ease. The renewed fire leaped and sparkled and threw quaint shadows through the great old room, and as he sipped his hot tea, he reveled in the sense of isolation from his kind. Then it was that he began to notice for the first time what a noise the rats were making. Surely, he thought, they cannot have been at it all the time I was reading. Had they been, I must have noticed it. Presently, when the noise increased, he satisfied himself that it was really new. It was evident that at first the rats had been frightened at the presence of a stranger and the light of a fire and lamp, but that as the time went on they had grown bolder and were now disporting themselves as their wont. How busy they were, and hark to the strange noises, up and down behind the old wainscot, over the ceiling and under the floors they raced and gnawed and scratched. Malcolmson smiled to himself as he recalled to mind the saying of Miss Dempster, "'Bogies is rats, and rats is bogies.' The tea began to have its effect of intellectual and nervous stimulus. 
He saw with joy another long spell of work to be done before the night was passed, and in the sense of security which it gave him, he allowed himself the luxury of a good look around the room. He took his lamp in one hand and went all around, wondering that so quaint and beautiful an old house had been so long neglected. The carving of the oak on the panels of the wainscot was fine, and on and round the doors and windows it was beautiful and of rare merit. There were some old pictures on the walls, but they were coated so thick with dust and dirt that he could not distinguish any detail of them, though he held his lamp as high as he could over his head. Here and there, as he went round, he saw some crack or hole blocked for a moment by the face of a rat, with its bright eyes glittering in the light, but in an instant it was gone, and a squeak and a scamper followed. The thing that most struck him, however, was the rope of the great alarm bell on the roof, which hung down in a corner of the room on the right-hand side of the fireplace. He pulled up close to the hearth, a great high-backed carved oak chair, and sat down to his last cup of tea. When this was done, he made up the fire and went back to his work, sitting at the corner of the table, having the fire to his left. For a little while, the rats disturbed him somewhat with their perpetual scampering, but he got accustomed to the noise as one does to the ticking of a clock or to the roar of moving water, and he became so immersed in his work that everything in the world except the problem which he was trying to solve passed away from him. He suddenly looked up. His problem was still unsolved, and there was in the air that sense of the hour before the dawn which is so dread to doubtful life. The noise of the rats had ceased. Indeed, it seemed to him that it must have ceased, but lately and that it was the sudden cessation which had disturbed him. The fire had fallen low, but it still threw out a deep red glow. As he looked, he started in spite of his sang-froid. There, on the great high-backed carved oak chair by the right side of the fireplace, sat an enormous rat, steadily glaring at him with baleful eyes. He made a motion to it as to hunt it away, but it did not stir. Then he made the motion of throwing something. Still, it did not stir, but showed its great white teeth angrily, and its cruel eye shone in the lamplight with an added vindictiveness. Malcolmson felt amazed, and seizing the poker from the hearth ran at it to kill it. Before, however, he could strike at the rat with a squeak that sounded like the concentration of hate, jumped upon the floor and running up the rope of the alarm bell disappeared in the darkness, beyond the range of the green-shaded lamp. Instantly, strange to say, the noisy scampering of the rats in the wainscot began again. By this time, Malcolmson's mind was quite off the problem, and as a shrill cock-crow outside told him of the approach of morning, he went to bed and to sleep. He slept so sound that he was not even waked by Mrs. Dempster coming in to make up his room. It was only when she had tidied up the place and got his breakfast ready and tapped on the screen which closed in his bed that he woke. He was a little tired still, after his night's hard work, but a strong cup of tea soon freshened him up, and taking his book he went out for his morning walk, bringing with him a few sandwiches lest he should not care to return till dinner time. He found a quiet walk between high elms some way outside the town, and here he spent the greater part of the day studying his Laplace. On his return, he looked in to see Mrs. Whitham and to thank her for her kindness. When she saw him coming through the diamond-paned bay window of her sanctum, she came out to meet him and asked him in. She looked at him searchingly and shook her head, as she said, "'You must not overdo it, sir. You are paler this morning than you should be. 
Too late hours and too hard work on the brain isn't good for any man. But tell me, sir, how did you pass the night? Well, I hope. But my heart, sir, I was glad when Mrs. Dempster told me this morning that you were all right and sleeping sound when she came in. Oh, I was all right, he answered, smiling. The somethings didn't worry me as yet, only the rats. And they had a circus, I tell you, all over the place. There was one wicked-looking old devil that sat up on my chair by the fire and wouldn't go till I took the poker to him, and then he ran up the rope of the alarm bell and got to somewhere up the wall or the ceiling. I couldn't see where. It was so dark. "'Mercy on us,' said Mrs. Whitham, "'an old devil, and sitting on a chair by the fireside. Take care, sir, take care. There's many a true word spoken in jest.' "'How do you mean? Upon my word, I don't understand.' An old devil. The old devil, perhaps, there, sir, you needn't laugh, for Malcolmson had broken into a hearty peal. You young folks think it's easy to laugh at things that make older one shudder. Never mind, sir, never mind. Please, God, you'll laugh all the time. It's what I wish you myself. And the good lady beamed all over in sympathy with his enjoyment, her fears gone for a moment. Ah, forgive me, said Malcolmson presently. Don't think me rude, but the idea was too much for me, that the old devil himself was on the chair last night. And at the thought, he laughed again. Then he went home to dinner. This evening, the scampering of the rats began earlier. Indeed, it had been going on before his arrival, and only ceased while his presence, by its freshness, disturbed them. After dinner, he sat by the fire for a while and had a smoke, and then, having cleared his table, began to work as before. Tonight the rats disturbed him more than they had done on the previous night. How they scampered up and down and under and over. How they squeaked and scratched and gnawed. How they, getting bolder by degrees, came to the mouths of their holes and to the chinks and cracks and crannies in the wainscoting till their eyes shone like tiny lamps as the firelight rose and fell. But to him, now doubtless accustomed to them, their eyes were not wicked. Only their playfulness touched him. Sometimes the boldest of them made sallies out on the floor or along the moldings of the wainscot. Now and again, as they disturbed him, Malcolmson made a sound to frighten them, smiting the table with his hand or giving a fierce shh-shh. So they fled straight away to their holes. And so the early part of the night wore on, and despite the noise, Malcolmson got more and more immersed in his work. All at once he stopped, as on the previous night being overcome by a sudden sense of silence. There was not the faintest sound of gnaw or scratch or squeak. The silence was of the grave. He remembered the odd occurrence of the previous night, and instinctively he looked at the chair standing close to the fireside, and then a very odd sensation thrilled through him. There, on the great old high-backed carved oak chair beside the fireplace sat the same enormous rat, steadily glaring at him with baleful eyes. Instinctively, he took the nearest thing to his hand, a book of logarithms, and flung it at it. The book was badly aimed, and the rat did not stir. So again, the poker performance of the previous night was repeated, and again, the rat, being closely pursued, fled up the rope of the alarm bell. Strangely, too, the departure of this rat was instantly followed by the renewal of the noise made by the general rat community. On this occasion, as on the previous one, Malcolmson could not see at what part of the room the rat disappeared, for the green shade of his lamp left the upper part of the room in darkness, and the fire had burned low. On looking at his watch, he found it was close to midnight. 
and not sorry for the divertisement, he made up his fire and made himself his nightly pot of tea. He had got through a good spell of work and thought himself entitled to a cigarette, and so he sat on the great oak chair before the fire and enjoyed it. Whilst smoking, he began to think that he would like to know where the rat disappeared to, for he had certain ideas for the morrow not entirely disconnected with a rat trap. Accordingly, he lit another lamp and placed it so that it would shine well into the right-hand corner of the wall by the fireplace. Then he got all the books he had with him and placed them handy to throw at the vermin. Finally, he lifted the rope of the alarm bell and placed the end of it on the table, fixing the extreme end under the lamp. As he handled it, he could not help noticing how pliable it was, especially for so strong a rope and one not in use. You could hang a man with it, he thought to himself. When his preparations were made, he looked around and said complacently, There, now, my friend, I think we shall learn something of you this time. He began his work again, and though as before somewhat disturbed at first by the noise of the rat, soon lost himself in his propositions and problems. Again, he was called to his immediate surroundings suddenly. This time it might not have been the sudden silence only which took his attention. There was a slight movement on the rope, and the lamp moved. Without stirring, he looked to see if his pile of books was within range, and then cast his eye along the rope. As he looked, he saw the great rat drop from the rope on the oak armchair and sit there, glaring at him. He raised a book in his right hand and, taking careful aim, flung it at the rat. The latter, with a quick movement, sprang aside and dodged the missile. He then took another book and a third and flung them one after another at the rat, but each time unsuccessfully. At last, as he stood with a book poised in his hand to throw, the rat squeaked and seemed afraid. This made Malcolmson more than ever eager to strike, and the book flew and struck the rat a resounding blow. It gave a terrified squeak and turning on his pursuer a look of terrible malevolence, ran up the chair back and made a great jump to the rope of the alarm bell and ran up it like lightning. The lamp rocked under the sudden strain, but it was a heavy one and did not topple over. Malcolmson kept his eyes on the rat and saw it by the light of the second lamp leap to a molding of the wainscot and disappear through a hole in one of the great pictures, which hung on the wall, obscured and invisible through its coating of dirt and dust. I shall look up my friend's habitation in the morning, said the student, as he went over to collect his books. The third picture from the fireplace. I shall not forget. He picked up the books one by one, commenting on them as he lifted them. Conic sections he does not mind, nor cyclodial oscillations, nor principia, nor quaternations, nor thermodynamic. Now for the book that fetched him. Malcolmson took it up and looked at it. As he did so, he started. A sudden pallor overspread his face. He looked round uneasily and shivered slightly as he murmured to himself, The Bible my mother gave me. What an odd coincidence. He sat down to work again, and the rats in the wainscot renewed their gambols. They did not disturb him, however. Somehow their presence gave him a sense of companionship. But he could not attend to his work, and after striving to master the subject on which he was engaged, gave it up in despair, and went to bed as the first streak of dawn stole in through the eastern window. He slept heavily but uneasily, and dreamed much, and when Mrs. Dempster woke him late in the morning, he seemed ill at ease, and for a few minutes did not seem to realize exactly where he was. 
His first request rather surprised the servant. Mrs. Dempster, when I am out today, I wish you would get the steps and dust or wash those pictures, especially the one, the third from the fireplace. I want to see what they are. Late in the afternoon, Malcolmson worked at his books in the shaded walk, and the cheerfulness of the previous day came back to him as the day wore on, and he found that his reading was progressing well. He had worked out to a satisfactory conclusion all the problems which had as yet baffled him, and it was in a state of jubilation that he paid a visit to Mrs. Whitham at the Good Traveler. He found a stranger in the cozy sitting-room with the landlady who was introduced to him as Dr. Thornhill. She was not quite at ease, and this combined with the doctor's plunging at once into a series of questions made Malcolmson come to the conclusion that his presence was not an accident. So, without preliminary, he said, Dr. Thornhill, I shall with pleasure answer you any question you may choose to ask me if you will answer my one question first. The doctor seemed surprised, but he smiled and answered at once, Done. What is it? Did Mrs. Whitham ask you to come here and see me and advise me? Dr. Thornhill for a moment was taken aback, and Mrs. Whitham got fiery red and turned away, but the doctor was a frank and ready man, and he answered at once and openly. She did, but she didn't intend you to know it. I suppose it was my clumsy haste that made you suspect. She told me that she did not like the idea of your being in that house all by yourself, and that she thought you took too much strong tea. In fact, she wants me to advise you, if possible, to give up the tea and the very late hours. I was as keen a student in my time, so I suppose I may take the liberty of a college man, and without offense advise you not quite as a stranger. Malcolmson, with a bright smile, held out his hand. Shake, as they say in America, he said. I must thank you for your kindness, and Mrs. Whitham too, and your kindness deserves a return on my part. I promise to take no more strong tea, no tea at all till you let me, and I shall go to bed tonight at one o'clock at latest. Will that do? Capital, said the doctor. Now tell us all that you noticed in the old house. Until Malcolmson then and there told in minute detail all that had happened in the last two nights. He was interrupted every now and then by some exclamation from Mrs. Whitham, till finally, when he told of the episode of the Bible, the landlady's pent-up emotions found vent in a shriek, and it was not till a stiff glass of brandy and water had been administered that she grew composed again. Dr. Thornhill listened with a face of growing gravity, and when the narrative was complete and Mrs. Whitham had been restored, he asked, The rat always went up the rope of the alarm bell? Always. I suppose you know, said the doctor after a pause, what the rope is? No. It is, said the doctor slowly, the very rope which the hangman used for all the victims of the judge's judicial rancor. Here he was interrupted by another scream from Mrs. Whitham, and steps had to be taken for her recovery. Malcolmson, having looked at his watch and found that it was close to his dinner hour, had gone home before her complete recovery. When Mrs. Whitham was herself again, she almost assailed the doctor with angry questions as to what he meant by putting such horrible ideas into the poor young man's mind. He has quite enough there already to upset him, she added. Dr. Thornhill replied, My dear madame, I had a distinct purpose in it. I wanted to draw his attention to the bell rope and to fix it there. It may be that he is in a highly overwrought state 
and has been studying too much, although I am bound to say that he seems as sound and healthy a young man mentally and bodily as ever I saw. But then the rats and the suggestion of the devil. The doctor shook his head and went on. I would have offered to go and stay the first night with him, but I felt sure it would have been a cause of offense. He may get in the night some strange fright or hallucination, and if he does, I want him to pull that rope. All alone as he is, it will give us warning, and we may reach him in time to be of service. I shall be sitting up pretty late tonight and shall keep my ears open. Do not be alarmed if Ben Church gets a surprise before morning. Oh, doctor, what do you mean? What do you mean? I mean this, that possibly, nay, or probably, we shall hear the great alarm bell from the judge's house tonight. And the doctor made about as effective an exit as could be thought of. When Malcolmson arrived home, he found that it was a little after his usual time, and Mrs. Dempster had gone away. The rules of Greenhouse charity were not to be neglected. He was glad to see that the place was bright and tidy with a cheerful fire and a well-trimmed lamp. The evening was colder than might have been expected in April, and a heavy wind was blowing with such rapidly increasing strength that there was every promise of a storm during the night. For a few minutes after his entrance, the noise of the rats ceased, but so soon as they became accustomed to his presence, it began again. He was glad to hear them, for he felt once more the feeling of companionship in their noise, and his mind ran back to the strange fact that they only ceased to manifest themselves when that other, the great rat with the baleful eyes, came upon the scene. The reading lamp only was lit, and its green shade kept the ceiling and the upper parts of the room in darkness, so that the cheerful light from the hearth spreading over the floor and shining on the white cloth laid over the end of the table was warm and cheery. Malcolmson sat down to his dinner with a good appetite and a buoyant spirit. After his dinner and a cigarette, he sat steadily down to work, determined not to let anything disturb him, for he remembered his promise to the doctor and made up his mind to make the best of the time at his disposal. For an hour or so, he worked all right, and then his thoughts began to wander from the books. The actual circumstances around him, the calls on his physical attention and his nervous susceptibility, were not to be denied. By this time, the wind had become a gale, and the gale a storm. The old house, solid as it was, seemed to shake to its foundations, and the storm roared and raged through its many chimneys and its queer old gables, producing strange, unearthly sounds in the empty rooms and corridors. Even the great alarm bell on the roof must have felt the force of the wind, for the rope rose and fell slightly, as though the bell were moved a little from time to time, and the limber rope fell on the oak floor with a hard and hollow sound. As Malcolmson listened to it, he bethought himself of the doctor's words. It is the rope which the hangman used for the victims of the judge's judicial rancor. And he went over the corner of the fireplace and took it in his hand to look at it. There seemed a sort of deadly interest in it. As he stood there, he lost himself for a moment in speculation as to who these victims were and the grim wish of the judge to have such a ghastly relic ever under his eyes. As he stood there, the swaying of the bell on the roof still lifted the rope now and again. But presently, there came a new sensation, a sort of tremor in the rope, as though something was moving along it. Looking up instinctively, Malcolmson saw the great rat coming slowly down towards him, glaring at him steadily. He dropped the rope and started back with a muttering curse, and the rat turning ran up the rope again and disappeared, 
and at the same instant Malcolmson became conscious that the noise of the rats, which had ceased for a while, began again. All this set him thinking, and it occurred to him that he had not investigated the lair of the rat or looked at the pictures as he had intended. He lit the other lamp without the shade, and holding it up went and stood opposite the third picture from the fireplace on the right-hand side, where he had seen the rat disappear on the previous night. At the first glance he started back so suddenly that he almost dropped the lamp, and a deadly pallor overspread his face. His knees shook, and heavy drops of sweat came on his forehead, and he trembled like an aspen. But he was young and plucky, and pulled himself together, and after the pause of a few seconds stepped forward again, raised the lamp, and examined the picture which had been dusted and washed, and now stood out clearly. It was of a judge, dressed in his robes of scarlet and ermine. His face was strong and merciless, evil, crafty, and vindictive, with a sensual mouth, hooked nose of ruddy color, and shaped like the beak of a bird of prey. The rest of the face was of a cadaverous color. The eyes were of peculiar brilliance, and with a terrible, malignant expression. As he looked at them, Malcolmson grew cold, for he saw there the very counterpart of the eyes of the great rat. The lamp almost fell from his hand. He saw the rat with his baleful eyes peering out through the hole in the corner of the picture, and noted the sudden cessation of the noise of the other rats. However, he pulled himself together and went on with his examination of the picture. The judge was seated in a great high-backed carved oak chair, on the right-hand side of the great stone fireplace, where in the corner a rope hung down from the ceiling, its end lying coiled on the floor. With a feeling of something like horror, Malcolmson recognized the scene of the room as it stood, and gazed around him in an awestruck manner as though he expected to find some strange presence behind him. Then he looked over to the corner of the fireplace, and with a loud cry he let the lamp fall from his hand. There, in the judge's armchair, with the rope hanging behind, sat the rat, with the judge's baleful eyes now intensified, and with a fiendish leer. Save for the howling of the storm without, there was silence. The fallen lamp recalled Malcolmson to himself. Fortunately, it was of metal, and so the oil was not spilt. However, the practical need of attending to it settled at once his nervous apprehension. When he had turned it out, he wiped his brow and thought for a moment. This will not do. He said to himself, if, if I go on like this, I shall become a crazy fool. This must stop. I promised the doctor I would not take tea. Faith, he was pretty right. My nerves must have been getting into a queer state. Funny, I did not notice it. I never felt better in my life. However, it is all right now, and I shall not be such a fool again. Then he mixed himself a good stiff glass of brandy and water and resolutely sat down to his work. It was nearly an hour when he looked up from his book, disturbed by the sudden stillness. Without... The wind howled and roared louder than ever, and the rain drove in sheets against the windows, beating like hail on the glass, but within there was no sound whatever, save the echo of the wind as it roared in the great chimney, and now and then a hiss as a few raindrops found their way down the chimney in a lull of the storm. The fire had fallen low and had ceased to flame, though it threw out a red glow. Malcolmson listened, attentively, and presently heard a thin, squeaking noise, very faint. It came from the corner of the room where the rope hung down, and he thought it was the creaking of the rope on the floor as the swaying of the bell raised and lowered it. Looking up, however, he saw in the dim light the great rat clinging to the rope and gnawing it. 
The rope was already nearly gnawed through. He could see the lighter color where the strands were laid bare. As he looked, the job was completed, and the severed end of the rope fell clattering on the oaken floor, whilst for an instant the great rat remained like a knob or tassel at the end of the rope, which now began to sway to and fro. Malkinson felt for a moment another pang of terror as he thought that now the possibility of calling the outer world to his assistance was cut off. But an intense anger took its place, and seizing the book he was reading, he hurled it at the rat. The blow was well aimed, but before the missile could reach him, the rat dropped off and struck the floor with a soft thud. Malcolmson instantly rushed over towards him, but it darted away and disappeared in the darkness of the shadows of the room. Malcolmson felt that his work was over for the night, and determined then and there to vary the monotony of the proceedings by a hunt for the rat, and took off the green shade of the lamp so as to ensure a wider spreading light. As he did, so the gloom of the upper part of the room was relieved, and in the new flood of light, great by comparison with the previous darkness, the pictures in the wall stood out boldly. From where he stood, Malcolmson saw right opposite to him the third picture on the wall from the right of the fireplace. He rubbed his eyes in surprise, and then a great fear began to come upon him. In the center of the picture was a great irregular patch of brown canvas, as fresh as when it was stretched on the frame. The background was as before, with chair and chimney and rope, but the figure of the judge had disappeared. Malcolmson, almost in a chill of horror, turned slowly round, and then he began to shake and tremble like a man in a palsy. His strength seemed to have left him, and he was incapable of action or movement, hardly even of thought. He could only see and hear. There, on the great high-backed carved oak chair, sat the judge in his robes of scarlet and ermine, with his baleful eyes glaring vindictively and a smile of triumph on the resolute cruel mouth as he lifted with his hands a black cap. Malcolmson felt as if the blood was running from his heart, as one does in moments of prolonged suspense. There was a singing in his ears. Without, he could hear the roar and howl of the tempest, and through it, swept on the storm, came the striking of midnight by the great chimes in the marketplace. He stood for a space of time that seemed to him endless still as a statue, and with wide-open, horror-struck eyes, breathless. As the clock struck, so the smile of triumph on the judge's face intensified, and at the last stroke of midnight, he placed a black cap on his head. Slowly and deliberately, the judge rose from his chair and picked up the piece of the rope of the alarm bell which lay on the floor, drew it through his hands as if he enjoyed its touch, and then deliberately began to knot one end of it, fashioning it into a noose. This he tightened and tested with his foot, pulling hard at it till he was satisfied, and then making a running noose of it, which he held in his hand. Then he began to move along the table on the opposite side to Malcolmson, keeping his eyes on him until he had passed him. When, with a quick movement, he stood in front of the door, Malcolmson then began to feel that he was trapped, and tried to think of what he should do. There was some fascination in the judge's eyes which he never took off him. And he had, perforce, to look. He saw the judge approach, still keeping between him and the door, and raise the noose and throw it towards him as if to entangle him. With a great effort he made a quick movement to one side and saw the rope fall beside him, and heard it strike the oaken floor. 
Again, the judge raised the noose and tried to ensnare him, ever keeping his baleful eyes fixed on him, and each time, by a mighty effort, the student just managed to evade it. So this went on for many times, the judge seeming never discouraged nor discomposed at failure, but playing as a cat does with a mouse. At least in despair, which had reached its climax, Malcolmson cast a quick glance round him. The lamp seemed to have blazed up, and there was a fairly good light in the room. At the many rat holes and in the chinks and crannies of the wainscot, he saw the rat's eyes, and this aspect, those purely physical, gave him a gleam of comfort. He looked around and saw that the rope of the great alarm bell was laden with rats. Every inch of it was covered with them, and more and more were pouring through the small circular hole in the ceiling once it emerged, so that with their weight the bell was beginning to sway. Hark! It had swayed till the clapper had touched the bell. The sound was but a tiny one, but the bell was only beginning to sway, and it would increase. At the sound, the judge, who had been keeping his eyes fixed on Malcolmson, looked up, and a scowl of diabolical anger overspread his face. His eyes fairly glowed like hot coals, and he stamped his foot with a sound that seemed to make the house shake. A dreadful peal of thunder broke overhead as he raised the rope again, whilst the rats kept running up and down the rope as though working against time. This time... Instead of throwing it, he drew close to his victim and held open the noose as he approached. As he came closer, there seemed something paralyzing in his very presence, and Malcolmson stood rigid as a corpse. He felt the judge's icy fingers touch his throat as he adjusted the rope. The noose tightened, tightened. Then the judge, taking the rigid form of the student in his arms, carried him over and placed him standing in the oak chair and stepped up beside him, put his hand up, and caught the end of the swaying rope of the alarm bell. As he raised his hand, the rats fled squeaking and disappeared through the hole in the ceiling. Taking the end of the noose, which was round Malcolmson's neck, he tied it to the hanging bell rope and then, descending, pulled away the chair. When the alarm bell of the judge's house began to sound, a crowd soon assembled. Lights and torches of various kinds appeared, and soon a silent crowd was hurrying to the spot. They knocked loudly at the door, but there was no reply. Then they burst in the door and poured into the great dining room, the doctor at the head. There, at the end of the rope of the great alarm bell, hung the body of the student, and on the face of the judge in the picture was a malignant smile. That was Bram Stoker's The Judge's House, as read by Stephen Kilpatrick. Stephen Kilpatrick is the former host of Tales to Terrify. He works supporting assistive technologies for special education students and is currently working towards a role in information assurance. Thank you, Stephen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. As a reminder, we're still open for submissions. Check out TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions for more details. And we're also looking for a few new narrators. If you'd like to lend your voice to the podcast, drop us a line at TalesToTerrify at gmail.com. 
And as always, if you'd like to support our podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find ad-free episodes, as well as gain access to upcoming bonus content. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts, so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by our editors Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sabastini, with theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we feed your fears with more Tales to Terrify. to look five years younger. In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.